Thank you, Judge. Your nomination comes before us during an unprecedented time in our nation's history. Oh, you got that right, sister. Senator, sister. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. All right, Senator Klobuchar. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in L.A., 91.7 FM KYAQ on the central coast of Oregon, and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, Oregon, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR Public Reality Radio. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. One and all, good to have you here. As the world continues to spiral out of control, at least our country does, uh, yesterday it was all-day hearings in the U.S. House Intelligence Committee on uh, Donald Trump and Russia and classified intelligence leaks. Today it's the confirmation hearings in the U.S. Senate for Donald Trump's nominee to the... Uh, his nominee, Judge Neil Gorsuch, to uh, take the seat vacated by Justice Antonin Scalia more than a full year ago. I think we are now at about 13 months since Scalia died and that uh, seat on the Supreme Court, that stolen seat on the Supreme Court has been open, stolen by Senate Republicans. Cable news have been, uh, uh, of course, covered uh, both hearings uh, yesterday and today at length. But should they be covering the Gorsuch nomination for a stolen Supreme Court seat on what will be a stolen Supreme Court, just the same way they do any old Supreme Court nomination? Uh, should the media be treating this as uh, politics as usual? I have been wrestling with this. Myself, Desi Doyen, oh, even as you have been slogging through uh, those Senate hearings all day, trying to, uh, you know, make sense of it all. Yeah, it's quite the conundrum. It is. How to cover a not normal situation. Uh, and, and I should add, you know, on a personal level and as an American, uh, I think that nobody other than Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, who I don't even know that much about. I know that he's very, very well respected. Uh, I know that he's considered uh, largely centrist as the chief of the um, the appellate court in D.C. But, I, you know, I think that nobody other than him, frankly, ought to be even considered by Democrats in the U.S. Senate. That is on a personal level. 
Um, whether the Democrats are up for it or not, I don't know. They appear, as, as far as I can tell, for the most part, they appear to be, no, just like the media, sort of normalizing what is an abnormal situation. Um, but I, you know, as someone in the media, I really don't know the right way to cover this uh, as a news person. Maybe I'm overreacting to it, uh, to the stolen seat. I don't know. Am I getting it all wrong? I don't think we ought to be covering it in the same way we cover any other Supreme Court nomination over the past 250 or so years of this nation's history. Uh, so are the media getting it wrong? Are the Democrats getting it wrong? We'll be joined momentarily by a guest uh, who may be able to help me sort all of that out. We will see. Uh, by the way, you can call your senator at 202-224-3121 if you have an opinion on whether they should filibuster Neil Gorsuch, Donald Trump's uh, uh, selection for the Supreme Court, uh, on any basis you like. Um, you can also use that same number, 202-224-3121, to call your congressman, if you like, uh, because uh, in the meantime, as all of this is going on, there remains a lot that is getting lost in all of the madness and that uh, I would argue you need to know about. We're not going to be able to cover all of it, but uh, here's one thing that I think you need to know. Because uh, this is coming in uh, hot and heavy uh, as we head towards a vote in the U.S. House on Thursday. Let me start here. James Waltemeyer, a police officer on unpaid medical leave, has been going to the hospital in defiance. That's a small Ohio city. Twice a week for physical therapy after leg surgery. All of it paid for by Medicaid. The New York Times reported over the weekend, Mr. Waltemeyer is 54 years old. He was able to sign up for the government health insurance program last year because Ohio expanded its uh, expanded Medicaid to cover more than 700,000 low income adults under the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Waltemeyer, nonetheless, voted for President Trump in part because of uh, Trump's support for law enforcement. But uh, now Mr. Waltemeyer is worried about the Republican plan to effectively end the Medicaid expansion program through legislation to repeal the health care law. Originally, the president said he wasn't going to do nothing to Medicaid, Mr. Waltemeyer said. Uh, after a rehab session recently, now they say he wants to take eight hundred and eighty eight billion dollars out of Medicaid. That's going to affect a lot of people who can't afford to get insurance, Waltemeyer said. Yep. And uh, I've got even worse news now uh, for Mr. Waltemeyer. Uh, it's going to be even worse than that, as Republicans uh, announced amendments late yesterday in hopes of eking out just enough votes to pass their Affordable Care Act replacement bill, the uh, American Health Care Act, uh, in order to pass that through the U.S. House on Thursday. They are rushing to ram this bill through the lower chamber uh, before sending it over to the U.S. Senate, I guess before too many Americans notice that the legislation, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget, Budget Office, would result in 24 million Americans losing health care over the next 10 years. 14 million next year alone, according to the CBO. And most of those people um, 
who are going to get screwed by the bill, uh, as a number of surveys have uh, shown, are actually voters like Mr. Waltemeyer, voters who live in counties that voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump last year. Better pass that bill before those voters notice, I guess. Although I suspect they'll be noticing after the bill is passed, if in fact it passes the House and Senate and is signed by Donald Trump. Uh, as to these amendments that are being made as everyone else is freaking out about everything else, um, the Washington Post reports that the tweaks uh, to the replacement bill addressed numerous GOP concerns about the legislation, ranging from the flexibility it would give states to administer their Medicaid programs to the amount of aid it would offer older Americans to buy insurance. Remember, under the CBO's analysis of the bill, as uh, as the bill was originally written in any event, before these uh, before these changes in the House, a 64-year-old who was earning $26,500 a year uh, would see yearly premiums rise from $1,700 under Obamacare to $14,600 under the Republican plan. So it went from what? From $1,700 to $14,600 under the Republican plan, according to the CBO. Now, that may change a little bit under the new amendments, which uh, which increase the amount of tax credits for some older Americans. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that people understand some of these changes here. Uh, Sahil Kapoor uh, from Bloomberg News noted there was a meeting on uh, on Monday night with the Freedom Caucus. And uh, the, the chair of the Freedom Caucus, Congressman Mark Meadows, said that currently there are still not enough votes to pass the legislation through the House. But that may change as Donald Trump is now lobbying, uh, <clears throat> lobbying these uh, House members uh, personally. But the uh, the ACA, the AHCA, the Affordable Care Act, uh, some of the changes among the changes that they are now going to put through uh, to this bill, they're going to put it through immediately as a what do they call a, a manager's amendment that Paul Ryan will add here. Uh, among the things it will do is it will repeal the Obamacare taxes that wealthy people paid. Uh, those taxes were going to be done away with in 2018. Now they're going to be done away with in 2017. They're going to be done this year. They're going to be done retroactively. So good news for rich people, not such good news for Mr. Waltemeyer in Defiance, Ohio. The top 0.1% will start saving an extra $250,000 a year in 2017 instead of in 2018, as the bill was originally written. Uh, even as Medicaid eligibility for the uh, lowest income gets much, uh, much tougher for folks like uh, police officer James Waltemeyer in Ohio. The bill's proponents also appeared to overcome a major obstacle on Monday uh, after the uh, key uh, hardline conservative group, the Freedom Caucus, uh, declined to take a formal position as a block against the bill. The House Freedom Caucus had threatened for weeks to tank the legislation, drafted by uh, uh, Speaker Ryan and Donald Trump, arguing that it does not do enough to undo the seven-year-old Affordable Care Act. They don't like it because it gives away too much. It's not cruel enough for them. That's basically it. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, their decision uh, not to act as a block now frees up House leaders uh, and White House officials to to persuade individual Freedom Caucus members to support 
the measure, which is now uh, underway. They are being whipped and whipped hard, apparently. Some of the changes unveiled on Monday were made to uh, placate those conservative conservatives, uh, such as accelerating the expiration of the uh, of, of the taxes, as I mentioned, doing that sooner, further restricting the federal Medicaid program. Uh, but a, a major push has also been made to win over moderate votes, uh, including a maneuver that House leaders said would allow the Senate to beef up tax credits for older Americans who could see major increases in premiums under the GOP plan. Oh, yeah. Premiums are also going up. So never mind uh, the folks who get Medicaid, the people who also just have regular old insurance under uh, under Obamacare, their premiums will be going up for a few years uh, much more so than they would have done under uh, under the Affordable Care Act, according to the CBO. Many of the amendments would make uh, changes, as I said, to Medicaid uh, that were pushed by the Freedom Caucus. One addition would give states the option of requiring able-bodied Medicaid recipients to work, uh, participate in job training programs, or do community service, CNN reports. Now, I should note that's not giving them the option of doing it. It's giving, it's giving states the option to force those Medicaid recipients to do these things before they actually get health care. Uh, right-leaning members have been uh, irked because Obamacare expanded Medicaid to 11 million Americans. Actually, it expanded it to a lot more Americans, but a bunch of Republican governors and uh, legislatures would not allow the expansion in their state. That after the uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, yeah, remember them? The U.S. Supreme Court uh, allowed it to be uh, voluntary instead of mandatory, as it was originally drafted in the uh, in the Affordable Care Act. Critics, however, say that these new amendments to the GOP plan will make it even harder for many low Americans to get needed health care. The revised legislation would allow states to opt to receive federal Medicaid funding as a block grant for uh, for adults and children in their program. Currently, uh, the new bill would would have allowed um, and, and would still allow. They can I guess they can take the choice here. The current bill allows for giving states a set amount of money per enrollee known as a per capita cap system. So uh, right now, the way the, uh, the the bill had been written would give X number of dollars for each person in each state on Medicaid, no matter what their needs are. If their needs go way up, sorry, you ran out of money, you ran out of your allotted uh, uh, Medicaid money. Good luck to you. Good luck with that cancer. Uh, the change that allows now this block grant is even worse because that means that uh, states would receive a fixed amount of federal funding each year, regardless of how many participants are in the program in their state. That would reduce federal support for Medicaid even more since the funding level would not adjust for increases in population and increases in enrollment. You get a fixed amount as a state. Good luck to you. Good luck with that cancer. Another alteration would immediately prevent states from expanding Medicaid at all. This is also a concession to the Freedom Caucus. Under the first version of the legislation, that enhanced Medicaid funding, that would stop as of January of 2020. But nothing uh, kept these states from uh, expanding the program before that if they wanted to. These Republican states who suddenly realized, hey, we could help millions of our citizens if we only expanded uh, Medicaid and took that free federal money that they have been offering us now for the past uh, seven years. 
There were signs on Monday, however, that the uh, the bill had growing support among moderates in the uh, in the U.S. House, at least a few of them. Uh, because of this uh, extra money now that they're looking to put into these tax credits for these older and disabled uh, Americans covered under Medicaid and an additional $85 billion in aid that will be directed to those who, were to, who will receive tax credits under the Republican plan if they are be, uh, between the ages of 50 and 65. Several House Republicans from upstate New York won an amendment, a carve-out for New York State only. And only, by the way, four counties in New York state. Uh, This would allow counties uh, in that state uh, to keep hundreds of millions of dollars of local tax revenue that they currently forward to the state government to fund its Medicaid program. Um, But this would apply just to those four counties, just to win the votes of those Congress members. Now, if you remember back to uh, back to the fight over Obamacare, um, there was uh, back in 2009 and 2010, uh, Republicans had freaked out about similar carve outs that were made for specific states. Oh, yeah. Remember this yes. um, Medicaid reimbursement boost uh, that Senator Ben Nelson, Democrat from Nebraska, had uh, won for his home state. Remember, Republicans, uh, Fox News called it the Cornhusker kickback. Right. Right. Yes, I remember now. Now they've got their own kickback that Huffington Post has called uh, uh, the New York carve out the the Buffalo buyout. So that's in the new bill. Republicans, I guess, are now cool with that sort of thing in order to buy votes. Um, But there are still a lot of folks in the Freedom Caucus who are opposed to this bill. Congressman Jim Jordan from Ohio uh, said nothing has changed. Uh, we still got a lot of problems with this bill, but opposition is uh, is still strong with our group despite the changes. Congressman Mark Meadows, uh, who, who founded the Freedom Caucus, said there are core things within this bill as it currently stands that would violate some of the principles of the Freedom Caucus. As in not being cruel enough, apparently. Uh, apparently, <laughs> that's exactly what they mean. Uh, so uh, this is now uh, unknown, unknown if this thing is going to be able to pass the U.S. House. A whole bunch of uh, U.S. senators have said that it will not pass the U.S. Senate, at least as it is currently written. But uh, you know what? Never uh, uh, underestimate the uh, the Republicans' ability to come together politically when they need to. And you can always remember to call your congressman or encourage, you know, your family and your friends who might be in states where these uh, these people are holding this up or making it worse. Um, These Congress members. You you can spread the word because your family members may not know your friends may not know that this could affect them. And that's the problem. Uh, People don't know. People even don't know what they're enjoying from Obamacare, as flawed as that legislation is. A new uh, a new Pew Research uh, Center survey indicates that the number of Republicans making less than thirty thousand dollars a year who believe the federal government has a responsibility to ensure health coverage for all. That number has now risen. From where it was last year, last year, only 31 percent of those Republicans thought that uh, the federal government uh, should ensure health coverage for everyone. That number is now up to 52 percent since just last year. They're starting to get it. For some reason, the media does such a crappy job of covering these issues that uh, people have no idea what it is. They just go with, the, oh, you know, corn husker kickback. 
Obamacare is uh, socialized medicine, is a government takeover of your health care. Death panels. Death panels. Just fourteen uh, percent of Republicans who make between thirty and seventy-five thousand last year said the government bore responsibility for health care. That number has now gone up to thirty-four percent. So from fourteen percent last year to thirty-four percent this year, suddenly they're figuring it out. Why is the uh, are the media suddenly doing a better job, or are they now suddenly realizing now that uh, Donald Trump is in office and Republicans are actually moving forward with this crap uh, that it's going to hurt them even more than they had any clue? Maybe that's it. I don't know, but there's a lot of stuff I don't know lately. Like, how the hell to cover these uh, uh, Supreme Court confirmation hearings? Uh, You know, uh, usually we cover hearings as we, you know, cover all kinds of confirmation hearings. But in this case, where you've got a stolen Supreme Court seat, which is going to result in a stolen Supreme Court for generations, I really don't know the right way to cover that. Maybe my uh, guest coming up next does. Uh, I could use, I'll take whatever help I can get. This is Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Does that make me crazy? Does that make me crazy? Maybe it does. I don't does know. That make me crazy? <sighs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I am crazy. The New York Times editorial board writes today. Here's a good question for Judge Neil Gorsuch, who sat before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Monday and today for his confirmation hearings to be a Supreme Court justice. Why are you here? The only uh, one honest answer would be, I shouldn't be. Under other circumstances, they write, Judge Gorsuch uh, would be a legitimate nominee by a Republican president. The problem is how he got to this point in the first place. Judge Gorsuch became President Trump's nominee only after Senate Republicans' outrageous and unprecedented blockade of Merrick Garland, they write, whom uh, President Barack Obama picked to fill the same seat more than a year ago and who, by all rights, should long ago have been sitting where Judge Gorsuch is now, introducing his family, smiling for the flashbulbs and listening patiently as senators lecture him about the Constitution. But Senate Republicans made sure that would never happen, refusing even to meet with Judge Garland, the chief of the federal appeals court in Washington and one of the most widely respected judges in the country, let alone give him a hearing or a vote. On Monday, the senators mostly acted as though they did nothing wrong and couldn't understand why Democrats were so upset. One exception was Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who admitted that he thought long and hard about whether the Republicans' blockade was justified. 
It was, he decided, because he was sure Democrats would have behaved the same way if the situation had been reversed. With the Senate remaining in Republican hands, the Times uh, editorial board writes, Democrats have no power to block Judge Gorsuch's confirmation if they attempt to filibuster which would be an understandable reaction, it's highly likely the Republicans will eliminate that tool, as the Democrats did in 2013, for lower court nominations, and then Judge Gorsuch would sail right through. Writing at the American Constitution Society blog recently, Peter M. Shane, professor of constitutional administrative law at Ohio State University, offers a very similar sentiment. He writes, many reasons exist to oppose the nomination of Judge Neil A. Gorsuch to succeed the late Justice Antonin Scalia. This is especially so if you have principled objections to judicial methodologies that purport to constrain judges, but which, in the hands of conservatives, lead quite predictably to politically conservative outcomes. But even for senators, he writes, who think taking a judge's legal views into account is somehow inappropriate, a perfectly principled reason to oppose the Gorsuch nomination is to avoid rewarding Senate Republicans' 2016 assault on constitutional governance and the Obama presidency. The issue is not just comeuppance, he writes, for the mistreatment of Judge Merrick Garland. The issue is whether there remains any institutional penalty for sabotaging constitutional norms. Well, that's a very good question. And so far, it does not seem like there is any such penalty. Gorsuch's confirmation hearings move forward today almost as if there was nothing at all unusual about this, aside from the occasional short statement made by one of the Democratic senators on the uh, on the Judiciary Committee. Here was uh, Vermont Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy, for example, earlier today. Now, you know from our earlier discussions, um, and I had told you, very frankly, that of course I felt that if the Republicans had followed the Constitution and practiced, Chief Judge Merrick Garland would be on the Supreme Court today. Since this committee began holding hearings, public hearings of Supreme Court nominations, began in 1916. I wasn't here at that time, but it has never denied a hearing or a vote to a pending nominee ever until Chief Judge Garland. I think it was shameful. I think it has severely damaged the reputation of this committee. I think it has severely damaged the reputation of senators who concurred uh, with that. We were anything but the conscience of the nation in that regard. and. Those who proudly held their hand up to this and swore that they would uphold the Constitution of the United States did not. That was uh, Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy. He, uh, he then went on with a fairly routine line of questioning for Judge Gorsuch concerning his record, his views, other questions that, uh, as is now the tradition in these uh, hearings, uh, the nominee avoided answering with any real substance. Uh, asserting that he might be asked to oversee a related case in the future, so he didn't want to prejudice the matter in some way. So is there any institutional penalty, as Professor Shane asks at, uh, at ACS, 
for what, at least in my view, is not just the blatant theft of a U.S. Supreme Court seat by Republicans, but with it, the blatant theft of the Supreme Court itself for potentially a generation or more. Since Gorsuch would give so-called conservatives, Republican appointees, a five to four majority on the court that would have otherwise gone to a gone gone Democratic after a generation of liberal jurists being in the minority on the court. Should Senate Democrats have a more organized opposition plan against Gorsuch and 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 frankly, any other Trump nominee short of Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland? Well, here to figure uh, help us figure all of this out and to help me figure out how to cover it is Professor Peter Shane. He is the Jacob E. Davis and Jacob E. Davis II uh, chair at Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law. He's an internationally recognized scholar in administrative law, specializing in separation of powers issues. He's co-authored leading case books on both subjects. He served on the faculty at the University of, Ohio- of Iowa College of Law, was Dean at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Can't hold a job, eh? He has also received a National Science Foundation grant for interdisciplinary study related to cyberspace and democracy. Professor Shane, great to have you here on the broadcast, sir. Uh, I'm honored. Thank you. Uh, You know, uh, Professor, I'm having a hell of a time uh, figuring out how to cover all of this, these hearings, etc. You know, many in the in the corporate media seem to be simply covering them as if it's any old Supreme Court nomination. I feel like it is decidedly not, and that covering it as such, you know, examining Gorsuch's record, uh, etc., even critically, does little more than normalize a non-normal process here. I'd like to, frankly, ignore it entirely for that reason, but that doesn't feel right either. So are, are we in the media, and yes, the Democrats in the Senate along with us, uh, failing here by normalizing a decidedly not normal moment, or am I overreacting to all of this? I, I don't think you're overreacting, Brad, and I, but I do think, um, you know, the last... Uh, six months or so have made normalizing uh, a part of the American vocabulary to an extent uh, we've never before, uh, you know, endured. I, you know, there has been, you know, with regard to mm-hmm. the court specifically, um, a, a kind of degenerating process, you know, going back, you know, at least to the 80s, if not before, um, where these things seem to get worse and worse. And, Whereas the parties in Congress, you know, typically had modes of, you know, cooperating within limits uh, to achieve, you know, effective government within some broadly acceptable mm-hmm. range of uh, of values, that just seems to have completely broken down in pursuit of, you know, I I, I don't think it's equivalent on both sides. I think um, the Republicans have have played a, a tougher hand and really pursued, you know, their policy objectives relentlessly without regard to, you know, the, the, the observance of these earlier norms. Now, what, part of what makes this confusing, and I think what contributes to your own sense of frustration, which I don't think is idiosyncratic by any means, is that this, of course, occurs against the backdrop of a Trump administration, but first of all, that, that got to power by ignoring pretty much every norm of civic decency that would ordinarily accompany even a hard-fought presidential campaign, um, and 
has been relentless in undermining um, institutional norms of governance ever since. Mm-hmm. So, so this really does require all of us, as you know, as citizens, as you know, professionals in different walks of life. If we were elected officials, you know, we would have to think about that from from that position mm-hmm. to decide, you know, to what degree do we do whatever our job description was, you know, before election day, <laughs> in the right. same way we would do it, or do we have to rethink? And, and I and I think my answer to that, um, you know, it, what makes this complicated is that the response I think inevitably is going to be partly strategic and partly moral. The strategic part is, you know, I'm hashtag resistance, right. <laughs> along with millions of others. But you know, I I, I want to produce a, a positive outcome. You know, I I I I want to get back to a situation where progressive values and progressive political leaders and, and legislators just have a much stronger hand uh, in the direction of the country. And, you know, where we as a nation are back in the business of expanding individual rights, uh, protecting people's uh, health, security, and safety, not, uh, you know, not deregulating them. So I think, you know, the question at every stage has to be, what's the strategic move? The, The hard part about that is because the president's campaign was so toxic, mm-hmm. uh, one could hardly exhaust a catalog of appropriate adjectives. It was dishonest, it was racist, it was xenophobic, misogynist, uh, that any time the Republicans accomplish any policy goal uh, now seems like it's giving a victory uh, that's in- entirely illegitimate and undeserved. Well, let, let me let me speak to that point, because, uh, of course, you're right. Uh, you know, Donald Trump's presidency and, and candidacy breaks all of the norms. We have been struggling with that as well, how to cover that over the past uh, year or two. Um, but, you know, in this case, even if it wasn't Donald Trump, had it been, I don't you know, take your Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, we would still be looking at a situation where the Republicans, as a party, as an institution, have effectively stolen the Supreme Court um, for a generation. And this seems to me to be, in and of itself, different than anything we have ever seen. You write in your uh, in your piece, uh, Peter Shane, at the American Constitution Society, that Republicans have offered a breathtaking exercise in revisionist history in order to defend what they have done. Uh, how so? How, how do you see them uh, revising history with, with what they've done here to justify it? Well, you know, first of all, I, I don't disagree with the word that you just said. Um, and the uh, you know the revisionism is that somehow uh, President Obama breached what had become a norm for presidents of not uh, seeking to fill vacancies on the Supreme Court uh, in the last year of their terms. This is simply n- not true. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they refer to an 80-year tradition. You know, it, it's been 80 years since a vacancy arose in the last year of a president's term. Um, that's why I said, you know, the the one uh, moment in which I indulged my my, my uh, sarcastic instinct um, in that uh, essay was to say you might as well refer to you know a 228 year tradition of not nominating people to fill non-existent seats on the Supreme Court. Um, <laughs> right. You know, there's you know there's no other uh, 
principle that they can rely on. That the, there are six instances in which the Senate uh, kind of refused to go forward with the normal process, all in the 19th century. None of them involved actually. Um, uh, well, three of them didn't involve uh, elected presidents at all. They were all people who took office because of uh, a uh, predecessor's death. And the other three cases um, all involved vacancies that arose uh, between the election, uh, you know, after an election had uh, already occurred. Okay. You know, th- this is not, you know, eight months ahead of an election. So um, there is no close precedent. And the idea, you know, and the, the line that the GOP was using is, you know, this is something for the people to decide. And I, I completely agree. The people decided in the year 2012 that for the years two. 2013 to 2017, the President of the United States would be Barack Obama. Um, He wasn't elected to a three-year term. He was elected to a four-year term. And in nominating someone, he was performing his constitutional duty, and the Senate had a constitutional obligation to give Judge Garland a hearing. And the reason they didn't, uh, I would say two things. You know, they didn't want Judge Garland to become Justice Garland was, of course, the fear that you know they would be losing you know what had been a secure five four conservative majority on the court, mm-hmm. but they also didn't want to give him a hearing because they knew if they gave him a hearing that Judge Garland would appear to be so thoughtful, so reasonable, so accomplished and balanced a person that um, it would be politically much more difficult to vote no. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they were not con- nobody in the Senate's constitutionally obligated to vote in favor of Judge Garland. Right. It would just be hard to explain why. And um, yeah, so that is the dilemma. And this is one, you know, breach of norms that cannot be put on, you know, Donald Trump's shoulders personally, but is part of the same kind of far right agenda of a certain faction of the Republican Party that has really been dominant uh, increasingly dominant since the 1980s. Let me ask you uh, this, since we tend to agree on so many of these points. Let me let me point to uh, the, the Constitution itself uh, does leave the process, as I understand it, of advice and consent on on this uh, matters like this, uh, largely up to the Senate itself. Republicans control Congress. Uh, and and they did uh, control the Senate last year when uh, Garland's nomination came up. Can't they take up that role essentially any way that they want, the advice and consent role, including, you know, advising the president, President Obama in this case, that they will not consent in any way, uh, you know, as they did with Merrick Garland. Isn't that their right? Isn't it uh, perfectly legal and legitimate? It may be different than uh, tradition and norms, but... Other than that, uh, you know, they can do whatever they want. It's totally legal, and we should just all sort of suck it up and get used to it. I think, you know, the the trick in that question is defining what it means to be legal. If you define as legal anything that can be done without fear of a um, kind of judicial rebuke, then yes. I mean, you know, Justice Garland had no court in which he could have appeared to uh, seek an injunction requiring that he be given a hearing. Mm-hmm. But um, a wise Supreme Court justice, a, a Republican, a former governor of New York, Charles Evans Hughes, uh, once wrote a, a very important line. He said, uh, behind the precise words of the Constitution are postulates that limit and control. And what he meant by that is that, you know, this is not just a, a text in which everybody gets to push their authorities to the absolute limits of what language would permit, the document has to be implemented considering, you know, the full implications of its 
values and and, and overall structure. Um, could, could the Senate get away with uh, saying, you know, we're not going to give a hearing to any person nominated to be a judge uh, unless they have um, declared Jesus Christ their personal Savior? Yes, they could get away with that. But that wouldn't make it constitutional. It would be a violation of the Establishment Clause. Mm-hmm. And when Congress, when the Senate said, you know, we're not going to even uh, meet with Judge Garland, we're not going to give him this process, they were not taking seriously their obligation, which is equivalent to the president's obligation, to preserve and protect the Constitution. Uh, the reason for the confirmation power going to the Senate was, in fact, to primarily to check potential corruption and cronyism mm-hmm. uh, in terms of presidential appointments, which is you know, interesting, perhaps, given our current president. But what has happened, it's common to say that the current situation we're in started with the Bork nomination. Mm-hmm. And usually uh, it is said that that means it's the Democrats' fault for, you know, politicize, for denying a Supreme Court seat to a, a nominee who was so obviously qualified. Well, I agree that the Bork nomination changed things, but not for that reason. Prior to the Bork nomination, what would be typical is that a president would nominate some highly qualified person based largely on you know, their prior loyalty to the party, maybe their general, um, you know, a general sense of their values and inclinations. But you know, at most, you know, for example, you know, when Richard Nixon appointed justices, mm-hmm. not that I'm nostalgic for the Nixon administration, <laughs> he was looking for justices. I am. Thought, at this point, I am, yeah, Peter. <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. I hear okay. you. All right, go ahead. Uh, I mean, the guy did create the Environmental Protection Agency. We should give him credit for yes, that. Yes, that's right. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, he was looking for somebody who was, um, you know, who would be tougher on criminal defendants than he perceived the Warren Court had been. But what was different about the Reagan administration and the Bork nomination is that they didn't have a litmus test. They had a litmus menu. Mm-hmm. And Bork was picked not because he would be generally more conservative on some particular issue on which uh, President Reagan had run, but because they, it was assumed that he would take a hard stance on a whole series of issues you know, to which the administration w- was basically uh, pledging its allegiance. But the, even in that process, uh, Peter, they they went through the the proper process. They held oh, hearings. Uh, you know, they they continued forward as normal, and arguably, they did their job of advising and consenting in that case. To, and, and even more tellingly, yeah. I would say, you know, the Democrats, you know, gave a hearing, gave a vote, did not filibuster. Uh, the nomination of, of Clarence Thomas to succeed Thurgood Marshall, mm-hmm. which was um, at least as a, a convulsive uh, jurisprudential shift in the mm-hmm. court's majority uh, as anything um, Judge Garland would uh, offer. Sure, but they've been, of course, punished for that uh, vote ever since, even though they allowed him, uh, they allowed uh, Clarence Thomas on the court. Uh, now, Republican, we got just a few minutes left here, uh, Peter Shane. Uh, Republicans have argued... The Democrats, and you heard I uh, mentioned Lindsey Graham, uh, they've argued that Democrats would do the same thing. They, they even cite uh, Biden and uh, Schumer as discussing the possibility of not voting for a George W. Bush nominee, uh, nominee if a seat had opened in his uh, final year in office. So is there 
uh, hypocrisy there. And on the other side of this issue, um, you cite in your in your piece at ACS, uh, uh, Ted Cruz and John McCain, both speaking about the point that they were getting ready to block any and all uh, Hillary Clinton nominees had she won the presidency. And, uh, you know, we, we've spoken in this on this program in the past with uh, constitutional and Supreme Court expert uh, Ian Milheiser. He said on this show a year or two ago that he wouldn't be surprised if Republicans were planning to block what would have been three or four vacancies during a Clinton presidency or whoever the Democratic nominee was. Um, so do you agree, I guess, that have Democrats in the past, in fact, suggested they would do the same thing? And uh, and what about uh, Republicans had, in fact, Hillary Clinton won? Two-part question for you. Yeah, actually, there are at least two parts in there. At but least, Part yes. one is, I think, um, uh, you know, uh, Schumer and Biden were, were quoted, you know, were quoted out of context. You know, they said, you know, we could do this. We shouldn't. This is the second part. Mm-hmm. Um, this shouldn't happen. This shouldn't be the way that we proceed. Ah. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, th- there was no such uh, democratic impediment to any uh, Supreme Court nomination by a Republican president. Nothing equivalent to this or remotely equivalent ever. You know, somebody once said, you, you know it's a smear campaign when somebody accuses you of, of their own worst failings. Mm. And, and I applaud, I give Senator Graham for at least being candid that this was a political calculation, not sort of a, a high-minded mm-hmm. uh, adherence to some non-existent tradition. Um, but in saying, you know, I felt okay about this because the Democrats would have done it, he is just projecting onto the Democrats something that the Democrats have never actually moved ahead to do to a Supreme Court justice. Um, you know, this is this is just just a, uh, a canard. Uh, what, what should Democrats be doing at this point, Professor? Uh, should they announce, I think Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley uh, announced immediately that he would be filibustering any nominee, essentially, that was not Merrick Garland. Uh, should Democrats announce that they plan to filibuster? Should they have organized here? Because uh, right now, this thing seems to be moving forward as uh, business as usual, politics as usual, and the media are, are covering it, by and large, in that way. So what what should be happening in a, uh, you know abnormal situation like this, as you see it? Well, in terms of the media, and I'm in a fact-based profession as well, right. um, you know, our, our job is to just be as relentless and as accurate as we can be in pursuing and, um, and describing the, the truth. Um, so, you know, we should just rededicate ourselves to being as conscientious as possible to doing, you know, what really are our jobs. As for the Senate, I guess there are two schools of thought. Just I'll try to be brief. One school of thought is, look, the court has been 5-4 conservative. Um, the Gorsuch nomination is not going to change things. The Democrats, um, you know, should probably hold their ultimate fire in case there's another vacancy because uh, Trump is likely to be weaker then, uh, assuming Trump is still president. Uh, if, he, if he tries a yet wilder nomination, somebody um, even further to the right, that the Democrats will be in a stronger political position to um, play chicken with the Republicans and force them to to live with the Democratic filibuster. Um, I I understand that school of thought. My own thinking is that the Republicans would have a hard time mustering the 50 votes to get rid of the filibuster. I I don't 
know, you know, I, I can't swear to this, but I don't. I think that there would be uh, at least three Republican senators who would regard the end of the filibuster as being enormously damaging mm-hmm. to the institution, would actually put that ahead of the Gorsuch nomination, or at least be willing to negotiate a way of going forward with the Democrats as long as um, you know the Senate and the White House were in the Republicans' control, that would at least protect against some real abuse uh, you know, the next time mm-hmm. around. But it, it seems to me that the Democrats you know, very frequently you know, just anticipate you know, the, the political defeat that, uh, that lies ahead, and so you know, just keep their powder dry for a, a fight that never happens. All I can say is, and you know, I, I, it's it's above my pay grade to, to tell the Democrats in in the Senate uh, how they should behave, but I will say that, um, insofar as they're worried about political blowback for being a fierce party of resistance, that's what the Republicans have been increasingly since 1980. Mm-hmm. If they paid a penalty for it, I haven't noticed. You're absolutely right. And by the way, not to mention, even if they did, as you you described, try to keep their powder dry in case there's a more radical uh, nominee next uh, for the next vacancy, they'll just blow up the filibuster then at that point. So, you know, if they're going to blow up the filibuster, I think I'm with you. I think I'm with what you're uh, suggesting, uh, Peter Shane, which is uh, go for it now. Uh, Call their bluff and let's find out what happens. Uh, Professor Peter Shane of uh, Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law. It's uh, it's been very good to have you here. Very helpful as we try to figure this out. And uh, please don't be shocked or surprised if we call you in the future to to help us continue figuring out this this fine mess. Well, thanks for reaching out, Brad. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You bet. You can find Peter Shane uh, and his article, A Principled Reason to Oppose the Confirmation of Neil Gorsuch at the American Constitutional Society. And you can find him and follow him on the Twitters at Peter M. Shane. Thanks, Professor. Uh, You're very welcome. Thank you. Okay, one more quick break, and we're back with a few more minutes on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation, or even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Another fine mess indeed. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. 
Uh, boy, I, you know, the new survey from C-SPAN uh, released this week, we're talking about uh, the Supreme Court and the way the media are covering the uh, the confirmation hearings, my wrestling with how to do it. Well, I, I don't know how to do it, but I do know that uh, the media apparently ain't done a good job with pretty much anything. This survey from C-SPAN finds that only 43 percent uh, this is amazing. A major, another, a majority of Americans are unable to name a single justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, a majority, only forty-three percent of U.S. voters can name a Supreme Court justice at all. Can name even one, according to C-SPAN, a survey uh, that comes as uh, Trump's Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch. Uh, began confirmation hearings on Monday. According to the survey, uh, oh, Desi Doyen, who, who do you think is the most named uh, Supreme Court justice? Who are most Americans able to name on the on the court? Um, let's see. I would say I would say Ginsburg. Personally. Very good. Yeah. Very, no, you oh, got it really? right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, justice, she's, she's such a meme and so deservedly so. Justice Ruth Gator, Bader Ginsburg, uh, the notorious RBG, was named by more than her fellow justices. However, just 16 percent of those surveyed were able to give her name. Chief Justice oh. John Roberts. Yeah, I know. She was <laughs> she was number one at 16 percent. Justice John Roberts, Chief Justice, uh, was f- followed behind her at 12 percent. And Justice Clarence Thomas was really? named. Yeah, oh. was named by 10 uh, percent of people surveyed. I guess they were people who were alive in the 90s. Yeah. And remember the uh, the last time we had an actually contentious uh, Supreme Court uh, uh, coverage, Supreme Court hearing with uh, Justice Thomas. Well, that's fascinating because I'd be interested. I'm sure they didn't poll, but I'd be interested in finding out if they could name any Supreme Court justice from ever. <laughs> from ever. Yeah. Well, even the current ones they can't name. So I don't know if they're going to name the historic ones. Just 3% were able to name Justice Sonia Sotomayor, but that's a tough name to remember, so I'm not surprised. Uh, Anthony Kennedy, Samuel Alito, Elena Kagan were named by just 1%, while no one among the 1,032 likely voters surveyed named Justice Stephen Breyer. Really? Isn't that sad? Yeah, uh, I was oh, hoping oh, it would be Alito. <laughs> uh, over a thousand people, nobody named Stephen Breyer. Uh, he was confirmed more than 20 years ago when asked if decisions made by the U.S. Supreme Court have an impact on their everyday life as citizens. However, 90% responded they, quote, totally agree. 90%. And yet uh, they can't name the, uh, the Supreme Court uh, members. Uh, Also, according to the survey, by the way, three in four likely voters supports cameras in the Supreme Court. Maybe that would help or maybe that would hurt. I don't know. All right. Very quickly here. uh, See if I can get this in. Uh, In December of 2011, Donald Trump had tweeted, uh, quote, the habitual vacationer Barack Obama is in is now in Hawaii. This vacation is costing taxpayers four million dollars. While there is a 20 percent unemployment. In fact, at the time, unemployment rate was actually 8.5 percent, not 20 (laughs) percent. Back in uh, 2011, uh, Trump later tweeted, President Barack Obama's vacation is costing taxpayers millions of dollars. Unbelievable. Well, uh, Donald Trump came back uh, to D.C. on Monday following his fifth 
vacation uh, weekend vacation trip down to Mar-a-Lago in uh, his resort in Palm Beach, Florida. His fifth weekend trip to Mar-a-Lago alone since in the two months that he's been president. I think yesterday I said it's only been three months. Yeah. Wishful thinking. Only been two months. The trip was taken just after Trump introduced his proposed budget plan late last week, uh, aiming to cut billions in aid to the poor in favor of billions of uh, new spending in the military. But as the uh, U.K. Independent noticed, Donald Trump could reverse his recently announced cuts to the arts, to the poor, to elderly services if he cut out those trips to Mar-a-Lago and lived permanently in the White House mansion instead. Calculations show four programs that face complete elimination which tackle homelessness, unemployment among uh, those over uh, 55, participation in the arts, and helping the poor access higher education. Those programs could be maintained at the cost of the president's trip to his private Florida resort alone over the next four years. Those services amount to a total of $597 million that will be cut, well, if Donald Trump has his way, that is just less than uh, $600 million, uh, that it will cost for uh, Trump's Mar-a-Lago visits, uh, the way the costs are estimated over the, uh, the course of his term if he keeps it up. Wow. The- so, so you're basically saying that these programs could be saved if only President Trump would not take would so many stop vacations. going out of town. But, you yep. know, presidenting is hard. Yeah. Uh, He's well, very tired. Well, listen, and I agree. I mean, overall, well, it's yes, a tiny it bit of money. Uh, but here you had him uh, back in 2011 calling uh, Barack Obama the habitual vacationer. And this guy is leaving town every single weekend. So uh, the, the programs that could be saved for the cost of letting him fly down to uh, Mar-a-Lago every weekend, uh, the National Endowment for the Arts. They uh, encourage participation in, in the arts. Uh, that uh, gets $152 million. That's going to be cut. The U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness gets just $4 million. That's going to be cut. Oh, that has to go. Uh, this effort, it's a federal government effort to reduce homelessness. Uh, the Senior Community Service Employment Program, which gets $434 million. That's helped more than a million people who are older than 55 f- find jobs. Got to get rid of that. And the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars uh, gets $11 million. That provides scholarships in social sciences and humanities. All are facing the axe in Mr. Trump's budget if it moves forward as he would like it to. Um, so that's a total of five hundred and ninety seven million. Uh, so and that's based on uh, the president spending every weekend of his first 33 days in office at the Palm Beach estate, uh, which uh, which cost an estimated ten million dollars. So uh, Americans uh, must foot that bill, $3 million each time he travels down to, uh, to Mar-a-Lago, coming out to $600 million over the four years. Trump's frequent visits to Mar-a-Lago, they note, stand in contrast to his pledges during the campaign. He told a reporter back in 2015, quote, I would rarely leave the White House because there's so much work to be done. I would not be a president who took vacations. Oh, well. Turns out. Another lie. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Peter Shane of Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law, and to you for spending a portion of your day with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. 
And you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. That is it for today. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>